Blog Talk Radio. Last chance for the Steelers. Bradshaw trying to get away. And his pass is broken up by Tatum. It's off. Michael Harris has it. And he's over. show that we hope will educate the sports listener to the specific of sports. With interviews, analysis, and a comprehensive look at the topics we feel will be appealing to the listener, and so with that in mind, we're not just your average call-in, same subject, same question over and over sports radio, but we like to think of ourselves as formative. So why not sit back and for the next 30 minutes or so, we hope you'll find the program informative educational, and above all, enjoyable. And with that said and done, this is Sports Beat, and we're coming at you live. And I'm your host, John Spool. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this segment of Sports Beat Radio, talking sports. And today we're going to be talking about the Immaculate Reception. You know, and uh, quite a interesting scenario there, uh, and we're going to be talking about what happened for those of you who, you know, didn't see it. Of course, that was way back in the 70s, right around Christmas time, and you heard the great Kurt Gowdy of NBC Sports along with one of the great analysts, Aldi Rogatis, courtesy of NBC Sports, and um, it was such a, uh, you know, an unbelievable Thing It was like the Christmas Day game in a way where, you know, Jan Stenerud missed the extra uh, field goal from 30-plus yards out uh, that would have put the Chiefs uh, into uh, the farther parts of the playoffs. And instead, Garo Upremian uh, kicks the field goal to win it for Miami. That was the last game at Municipal Stadium before the Chiefs would move on to Arrowhead. But, you know, the interesting thing is we all sat there and, watched this game and 
you know, it was interesting because we had seen the Steelers beat the Houston Oilers and Dan Pastorini throwing that uh, touchdown pass to Mike Renfro that they didn't have replay then. And, uh, you know, that's uh, always been a uh, sore spot for Houston Oilers fans, even carrying it over to the Tennessee Titans where uh, – Mike Renfro's feet, actually the tops of his feet, dragged inside uh, the goal, and uh, many thought that certainly that was a robbery that uh, took place. Uh, certainly not the Steelers' fault, but uh, it was an interesting scenario there where uh, the Houston Oilers probably should have gone to the Super Bowl that year. And uh, there's a lot of animosity still with Mike Renfro, who caught that pass in the end zone, and uh, Dan Pastorini, who was a pretty darn good quarterback. You know, he took a beating back there half the time. He played with broken ribs and everything else. But when we talk about the Immaculate Reception that day in Pittsburgh, um, was it frightened refs or was it just something else? So the most important play really in NFL history had just occurred. No one knew what really happened, as you heard even I think Kurt Gowdy and Aldi Rogatis were without words for a minute. And the intended receiver and primary defender were lying on the turf in the days, and several of the officials missed a key moment. And even the television cameras and film crews weren't quite ready for what took place. And the immaculate reception was the stuff of ur- urban legend. The moment Franco Harris crossed the goal line to secure the 13-7 win in a trip to the AFC championship game. Of course, the... Uh, Steelers would lose. That was the year the uh, Miami Dolphins were undefeated. They would lose in that championship game to the Miami Dolphins. But there are several tales intertwined around the Immaculate Reception, and we will touch on a few but focus on one, and that the referees only called the play a touchdown instead of an illegally deflected pass out of fear for their own safety. So officiating crew Fred Swaringen saw Steelers fans toppling onto the field and ran uh, to the Three Rivers dugout where the Pirates dugout was in the stadium called Stadium Security. When the safety of the officials couldn't be assured, he signaled a potentially life-saving touchdown. So the story goes, usually when told by the old Raiders, that's ludicrous, according to Barry Mano, president of the National Association of Sports Officials, an expert on referee safety protocol. So Art McNally, the NFL's head of officiating in 72, the man Swearingen spoke to during the fateful dugout phone call, literally cackles himself into a wheezing silence when asked about the notion that the officials that day called security to check on the safety before making their decision. So according to longtime Pittsburgh Post-Gazette columnist Gene Collier, writing in 1998, people put two and two together. That's what he said. So did the referees or the Raiders, for that matter, have any reason to fear angry mobs of the early 70s Steeler fans? And the answer to that question is part of the immaculate reception legend that is very uh, rarely told. So the play and the debate, NFL films footage of the immaculate reception may be the most famous sports highlight in American history. It's as recognizable to sports fans as, let's say, the Mona Lisa. But like the Mona Lisa, it's so familiar that it's easy to take its beauty and significance for granted. Some years after the fact, the entire episode of A Football Life was devoted to the play, and we'll reference it at times here, but that program was produced in uh, 2012, and some of the old-timers retold their tales for approximately the billionth time, but you know how tall tales can get after decades of retelling. So here's a quick recap, really, of what happened back in Pittsburgh in 72. The Raiders, who were 10-3-1, and and the Steelers were 11-3, and divisional playoff game, which at the time was the first round of the postseason. 
and it took place right before Christmas, December 23, 1972. Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh, which was a dual-use football and baseball stadium, hence the dugout. And the play begins with the Steelers having the ball in their own 40, fourth and 10 with 22 seconds left in the fourth quarter. And entering the 72 season, the Steelers had reached the playoffs just once in their nearly 40-year history. It had been nine years since they even had a winning season. And the Raiders were former AFL champions, enjoying their best season since the NFL-AFL completed the merger three years earlier. So with that, the Immaculate Reception represents the birth of the Steel Curtain dynasty, the Steelers-Raiders rivalry, and the Raiders' reputation as the wrestling-style heels who won and lose on the fringes of the rule book. It also presaged both instant replay and what's-a-catch debates. There was a lot going on, of course, in that game. So trailing 7-6 to six with no timeouts left in the fourth, Steeler coach Chuck Knoll, certainly one of the great coaches of all time, called a play called 66-circle option. And the play broke down quickly because the Raiders' pass rush, which forced Terry Bradshaw to scramble and throw to fullback Frenchy Fuqua, his first name was John, a Raiders safety Jack Tatum slammed into Fuqua just as the ball arrived, and the ball ricocheted, as uh, Aldi Rugata said in his uh, review of the play, backward toward rookie Franco Harris, who scooped the ball up and raced 60 yards into the end zone. So that's where the only highlight of any of us saw for decades ended, and this urban legend is about what happened next. So according to NFL rules back in 72, a receiver could not legally catch a pass that had been touched, batted, or deflected by another offensive player after leaving the quarterback's hands. So officials were not certain whether Bradshaw's pass had hit Fuqua or Tatum, so they huddled, and Raiders coach John Madden howled that the pass bounced off Fuqua, making the catch illegal. And Steelers fans had begun leaping onto the field to celebrate, even though there were still five seconds left on the clock. And after a conference with the officials, crew chief Fred Swearingen walked over to the baseball dugout, which had telephones. And with instant replay decades from arrival, Swearingen spoke to someone on the phone, and then he emerged and immediately signaled a touchdown. Security began clearing the fans from the field for the extra point. So newspapers reported varying accounts of what happened in the dugout, and some said that Swearinger uh, watched a replay, though there was no evidence that there was any television equipment in the dugout. And most agree that Swearinger spoke to NFL executive Art McNally on the dugout telephone, but the details change from story to story. It's kind of like a fish story. And McNally called Swearingen, Swearingen called McNally, McNally watched the replay, and McNally made the touchdown call and so on. So Raiders safety George Atkinson offered some eyewitness testimony of the referee conference 40 years later in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. We wandered over to hear what they were talking about, and we thought they were deciding if the play was dead. Instead, they were concerned about security. I heard it with my own ears. That's what George Atkinson said. So they were concerned how much security was there if they made the wrong call. Other than that, why would they have to call upstairs? For what? There was no instant replay. And they were calling security there. So there are plenty of reasons to doubt Atkinson's testimony. It arrives after 40 years of telling exaggerated wild Raiders stories in NFL films productions, for one thing. And referees shooed players away from the discussions in the 70s, just as they do now. So are we supposed to believe that Swearinger's crew simultaneously feared for its safety but let a bunch of hostile uh, players named Butch and Assassin listen on their deliberations? And Atkinson may have been mis, 
repre, uh, misremembering, I, excuse me, the uh, things a bit, but he was uh, restating something that had made the rounds for decades. And some Pittsburgh folks even spoke about the legend to NFL films. People say that the referee came out and said to the security man, can you protect our lives? That's what Steelers broadcaster Bill Hargrove said in the program. The guy said no, so we said touchdown. So added Mark Madden, Pittsburgh talk radio personality. He said, I know in my heart that when the referees got together to debate the call, they said, look, if we rule this incomplete, we're not getting out of Three Rivers Stadium alive. So to get to the bottom of this, we need to fix out uh, and find out really exactly what called uh, who called whom on that dugout foam after the uh, Immaculate Reception and why. So why are you going to call? Well, thousands of words were written about the Immaculate Reception in the next day's newspapers. But while most beat writers and columnists scoured the locker room in search of quotes from Tatum, Fuqua, Harris, and others, treating the referees' deliberations like a minor detail, Bob Oates of the Los Angeles Times focused on the mysterious phone call. McNally couldn't decide for sure what the television picture showed. That's what Oates said. But he could see it was so close that Pittsburgh, as the offensive team, deserved the benefit of the doubt. Thus, he decided to intervene. So... The press box witnesses noted at the time, however, that it was McNally who originated the conversation on the field phone. That was also confirmed by an NFL publicist who said McNally telephoned Swearingen to make sure the referee's decision conformed to camera evidence. In other words, Oates was near McNally, overheard at least one side of the phone exchange, spoke to the executive immediately, uh, typed up what happened for publication in a neutral city paper of record. And this is what researchers called a reliable primary source. So what's he calling for? Well, in an article in the 1998 issue of Trade Magazine, referee provides another account of conversation between McNally and Swearingen. Swearingen states in this article that he is in no position to see whom the ball caromed off, so he gathered the crew and polled members one by one. Three officials said they did not know. Two said they thought that the ball struck Tatum, but were not sure. So McNally saw the deliberation and contacted a Steelers sideline assistant via walkie-talkie. And um, McNally told the assistant to seek out the alternative official, just in case he needed to consult the Swearinger's crew. And this walkie-talkie conversation, the article notes, did not take place in McNally's press box seat. So when McNally returned to his seat, he saw Swearingen headed for the dugout. Apparently, McNally's relayed message among security guards and alternate officials was muddled, and Swearingen thought McNally was summoning him. McNally was told Swearingen needed a ruling. So here's McNally's recollection of the conversation as of 1998. The first thing Fred said was, and this is McNally's own uh, voice, Two of my men ruled that the ball was touched by opposing players. I thought all he had to do was get verification of the rule. So when he said that I said, you're fine, go ahead, everything is okay, that was the end of the conversation. So McNally and Swearingen's recollections 25 years later did not precisely match Oates' quotes of the time, but the substance is the same. And the phone conversation was extremely brief with the head of official doing little more than offering a blessing. And the referee article offers what likely is a bit more clear-eyed version of events given that McNally and Swergen were speaking to a trade audience about the procedure of officiating 
in an unusual situation, not nostalgic Steelers or Raiders fans or NFL Films producers seeking a compelling television program. There's less likelihood of mythmaking or spin in such clinical versions uh, of events. Steelers chairman Dan Rooney added one more layer to the late uh, tale in 2012, according to the article of Ed Bouchette of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Rooney, whose father, of course, was Art Rooney, had famously given up on the game, and he was in an elevator for the whole play. Uh, he said that he himself fielded the call from Swearingen, and Rooney said that a Steelers employee actually made the call on behalf of Swearingen. Rooney then called McNally over to where he was standing in the press box, and I said, this is Swearingen. Rooney said of his conversation with McNally, he said, Swearingen, what's he calling for? And I said, I don't know. McNally took the call from the referee at the game. So Rooney's memories may be about as reliable as Atkinson's after 40 years. People tend to put themselves in the middle of major stories. And still, the substance is uh, similar to both Oates and Referee Magazine accounts. A brief conversation in the press box, confusion involving intermediaries about who wanted to speak to whom, and McNally offered little but some moral support. And there was no mention of a call to stadium security in any of these accounts, nor any other published stories from the days after the Immaculate Reception. And the fact that the versions of events listed above mentioned stadium officials carrying walkie-talkies make it unlikely that Swearingen would turn to a dugout telephone to ask a security-related question. Who did he expect to come to their rescue? Well, still, the Raiders began floating the referees were scared storyline just hours after the game, and Gary Niver wrote an account of the Raiders' plane ride home from Pittsburgh from the San Mateo Times, published on Christmas Day. And Niver's account, Madden, who believed that McNally made the final call, not Swearingen, learns on the plane that McNally only saw the television angle of the replay, not some conclusive angle pulled from another source. I didn't know that, said Madden, but I do know that there was no way they could have reversed that Pittsburgh touchdown, even if it had been illegal. They, the officials, had to give Pittsburgh the victory to save their own lives. That's what John Madden said. So the legend likely began with a disgruntled coach reacting to a sympathetic reporter. Niver, the reporter, is on the team plane after all, and about his erroneous depictions of events. And then Madden alluded to a forgotten event one that made the danger of angering Steelers fans a real issue in the days before the Immaculate Reception. He said, we have faced adversaries uh, before and overcome them. I'd be a jerk if I tried to use the late plane or more uh, incident as an excuse. The late plane was exactly what it sounds like. A Raiders flight was delayed en route to the game. But what was the Moore incident? Well, early playoff lumps... Raiders Moore gets early playoff lumps, is what it said, read one headline of the syndicated AP Wire story, which in many newspapers ran on the same day as accounts of the Immaculate Reception, December 24, 1972. Beaten by cops, plant suit, ran the sub-headline. So a football player was beaten up by the police, and newspaper editors cracked a playoff lumps joke in the headlines. Bob Moore, a Raiders tight end and a teammate, were returning to the team hotel on the evening before the Saturday playoff game, only to find an unofficial Steelers pep rally taking place near the main entrance. So Moore and his friend tried to squeeze through the crowd. We told them we were Raiders players, and they all then hell broke loose, according to the story. And the Raiders ran to escape the crowd, and then, according to Moore, the player, 
they encountered a half dozen policemen. They beat me up with their clubs and their fists, he said. It was completely unprovoked on our part. So the AP story quoted an official police spokesperson addressing the incident. All we know is that a man named Robert Moore of 7811 Oakport Road in Oakland, California, 23 years old, was hit over the head in front of the Pittsburgh Hilton Hotel. And sure, changes might, charges might be filed if we find who hit the player. We have no idea how hurt he was. So another version of events, more revealed, he called the cop a blank blank, can't repeat it here, before all heck breaks loose. Ironically, the two Raiders had gone to the movies to see across 110th Street, a movie about urban violence and police corruption. So at any rate, Moore needed five stitches in his head and could not play in the game. And you are welcome to believe what you want about what happened to Moore the night before the playoff game 44, some 40, 50 years ago. But after that Moore incident, the Raiders themselves had reason to believe that Steelers fans were violent and that local police were at best less than helpful. Maybe Swearingen and his crew felt the same way as Steelers fans spilled onto the field. Logically, the Moore incident makes it even less likely that Swearingen would suddenly call for security at the exact moment he did. So Barry Mano, not Manolo, not the singer, Barry Mano, M-A-N-O, was a basketball referee for decades as president of the National Association of Sports Officials. He's now a leading expert and advocate of officiating safety at all levels of competition. According to Mano, referees in every sport at every level arrive at the game knowing that things could get ugly if they must make a crucial and critical ruling against the home team. So referees arrive with their antenna up, even at the high school levels. That's what Mano said. There are decisions made by officials at the lowest levels about where to park their cars. And the higher the level, the better the security. But officials who reach the NFL spend years moving through Pop Warner High School and small college ranks, having worried about getting a smashed windshield from angry parents at the start of their careers. They don't blunder into the fourth quarter of an NFL playoff game without a plan. Not now and not in the 70s when security was less professionalized. So before the game starts, the pregame conference, we're having a discussion. Okay, if things get tough out here, what's the protocol? That's what Mano explained. And whatever security is there, we want to know where they are. As we get into a very tense situation at the end of the game, we already had a conversation through the sideline officials about where security is. It's a shame we have to think so critically about that area, but you have to have a tactical game plan. How do we safely, coherently, and cohesively leave this area? All of those things have already been talked about, especially if we are going into the game where there is historical bad blood. So if word got around at the stadium that the Raiders players were beaten up by Steelers fans and possibly the police the night before the game, Swearinger's staff would have been on high alert long before the immaculate reception. And if they didn't trust the Pittsburgh security protocols, reread that police statement about more, that likely would have led to even more pre-planning by Swearing's and staff. Back in the Wild West days of the NFL, security wasn't there to the degree we have now. And sometimes we have biased security. We have, but we talked through all of those things as referees. So it's incredibly unlikely that a group of experienced referees were shocked to be in a late game, close call situation, and felt the need to make emergency phone calls to plan their escape route. That's what uh, Mano said uh, in his article. So the best reason to disbelieve the feared for the safety legend is the fact that while Bradshaw's pass obviously bounced off Tatum, the referees were going to rule in favor of the Steelers no matter what. Here's 
you know, when you listen to Kirk Gowdy's call off the play of NBC, last chance for the Steelers. Bradshaw trying to get away, and his pass is broken up by Tatum. We played that on the uh, intro of the show. Picked up. Franco Harris has it, and he's gone over. Gowdy also narrates the replay moments later, and Jack Tatum deflects it right into the hands of Franco Harris. And that replay shows the football crossing Fuqua's body. The ball ricochets backward in the opposite direction. Tatum was running, which is what you would expect when a light, fast-moving object strikes a heavy, fast-moving object. As Harris runs for the touchdown, a reverse angle shows back judge Adrian Burke signaling a touchdown. Burke was one of the officials who felt that the ball struck Tatum, according to Referee Magazine. So just about anybody uh, who saw the play live and had no affiliation with the Raiders saw the play as either a Steelers touchdown or too close to call as anything but Steelers touchdown, with one major exception, Fuqua himself. So Frenchie Fuqua, John, uh, was coy from the very first interview about whether the ball hit him. No comment, he said, after the game, according to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. I'll tell you, after the Super Bowl, I'm not chopping down any cherry trees. But no comment. That's what he said. Does the fact remains that the two television broadcasts make it hard to figure out how the ball would fly 20 yards in the opposite direction of Tatum without contact uh, with Tatum. And in modern terms, the call on the field would have been a touchdown and the replays would not be conclusive enough to overturn it. So Kirk Gowdy's play-by-play in the broadcast tape disappeared for 25 years and from the days after the initial broadcast to a mysterious unearthing of the footage before the 1997 rebroadcast before a Steelers playoff game. The only version of the immaculate reception anyone ever saw was the NFL film's footage. And iconic as it is, it's oddly spliced to get the best images from two imperfect camera angles. It always looked like there was a scene missing where the ball, Tatum, and Fuqua met. In fact, there was a scene missing. Neither camera got an unobstructed look at the collision. So the NFL Films version of the Immaculate Reception was perfect for myth spinning. Like good urban legends, those myths have only grown as memories faded and the early 70s started to feel like ancient times. Maybe somehow that football really did bounce from Fuqua to Franco, and the referees got the whole thing wrong. But they made the best call they could, and Rowdy Steeler fans didn't scare them. Veteran referees have seen it all before. Or have they? You know, when you look at the situation uh, with referees, uh, particularly now in the NFL, uh, some of the most inept calls have taken place. You know, we saw that uh, playoff game between the Rams and the uh, Saints where Drew Brees uh, throws the ball, and it was a clear uh, hit before the ball was even there. And, you know, millions of people saw it. All the people in the stadium saw it, as well as, of course, the coaches and players. And, you know, how they got away with that and cost the Saints a trip to the Super Bowl. So uh, we wanted to kind of present to you that situation, that scenario, uh, with, you know, what happened, what was the story on uh, that day uh, in 1972 when Franco Harris caught that deflection that supposedly went off of Jack Tatum. Uh, No matter how many times you see it, 
mainly it's grainy because that was uh, analog in those days. They didn't have digital. Today it would have been a lot easier. There's more camera angles today than there was uh, then. Television is always uh, certainly improving. And it was uh, interesting to see what, you know, happened and what uh, really, uh, you know, what was the story uh, behind it. And so we tried to, in some small way, make it uh, to the point where, uh, you know, you can best decide and give you a little insight, certainly, on uh, some of the things uh, that did happen, uh, you know, when we uh, look at the Immaculate Reception. It was an interesting time in football. We had, you know, the Steelers had also won a playoff game against the Oilers, as I said, when Mike Renfro was clearly in bounds. Bum Phillips, the head coach of the Oilers, uh, probably had a, a heart attack at the time. And, uh, you know, it was uh, uh, a sad day for Houston Oilers fans and uh, even Tennessee Titan fans who remember it, you know. And as I said, uh, players like Mike Renfro and uh, Dan Pastorini uh, are still themed about it, you know, is an interesting thing. So we leave you now with one more time the call from NBC Sports, the great Kurt Gowdy and Al DeRogatis. Last chance for the Steelers. Batchoff trying to get away. And his pass is broken up by Taylor. It's do it for our show today. Thanks so much for joining us on this segment of Sports Beat Radio Talk and Sports where we talked about the immaculate reception fact or fiction. We'll let you decide. It's still one of those types of plays kind of like the Kennedy assassination and some of the things that we still don't know really what happens in those scenarios. Hopefully we made it a little clearer for you. Thanks so much for joining us. All of you have a great day and great sports. We'll talk to you again soon, everybody. Be safe.